The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, I am thankful right now for how you have been meeting with, I trust all of us, but me, over the last few minutes as you have met with us in song and in prayer. You are good, gracious, awesome is your name. As I pray now, Lord, really what I want to ask you to do is continue to rest your hand on us. Continue to communicate yourself to us, truth to us. Change our hearts. Continue to draw us towards you. Now as we turn to your word. God, you are indeed glorious. You reign high above the heavens and the earth, and as was prayed, you have also determined to communicate your presence to us even now, not just in the future when you take us to be with you in glory, but even now. And we can be in your presence even now and know fullness of joy. What a kind and powerful God you are to be a shepherd who walks with us. Lord, we sang about how you determined to remove wrath off of your people by the blood of your Son shed on the cross. In the cross, we see the wisdom and the power of God, and we see the grace and the mercy of God. We see you displayed in wonder. And I say thank you for that. And I pray that you would continue to communicate to us now some other, some additional aspect of your wonder and that you would use the truth of who you are to draw us on after you to walk with you in in humble joyful happy obedience in submitted sacrifice and surrender the passage we have before us lord this morning touches on those themes and i pray you would make them clear to us that you would give me words that are clear you would give us the ability to think and listen clearly But Lord, I don't just, in praying that I, I want to clearly acknowledge that I don't just trust in human communication, human listening, but I ask you, Father, to send your Spirit to communicate truth to our hearts within the place that we can't touch. Communicate your truth to our hearts to change us. Open the eyes of our hearts. And as Ephesians 1 tells us, Paul prayed, open the eyes of our hearts and cause us to see to see with seeing eyes the great hope to which you have called us, the great value that you have towards us, and the great power that you have at work in us now, forever. Give your people eyes to see that and faith to trust it. Faith, faith to trust you. So Lord, I pray now open up the word here to us, teach us, Conform us to your image. Where needed, you, as you see it, where needed, would you bring conviction or encouragement? Would you spur people on or restrain people? However is appropriate, whatever is needed, use your word, Lord, to build your church, to honor your name. It's towards that end that we pray, asking that you would honor the name of Christ and in Christ honor yourself. Father, Son, Spirit. Honor Christ's name and build Christ's people, the church. Do good to us now, we pray, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of Philippians chapter 2. For some time now, we've been working through Chapter, end of chapter 1 on into chapter 2, seeing Paul dealing with this theme that he began in the end of 1 with encouraging the church to walk as citizens worthy of the gospel. That's what he wants to see that happen in the church, wants to see the church built up into. Been working on that for a while. And then last week, as we saw in verse 19, he, he takes a turn. 
if you will, he lets off the gas and, and stops pressing quite so hard to give us a couple of paragraphs that are, are less theologically loaded. He's going to talk about two particular men and their travel plans. Timothy first, though he's actually going to come to Philippi second. Epaphroditus second, though he's actually going to arrive first. And while this section is, these two paragraphs are less theologically dense, they are not meaningless. They're, they're here in the Bible for a reason. Paul is presenting these two men to us, telling us about them, to present them as models, something that the church is supposed to emulate. Both of these men are familiar to the church already, but in how Paul introduces familiar people, and how he introduces them, what he says about them, is, is telling us something. He's highlighting things about them on purpose, things that he has been teaching and wants to see show up in the church, in the congregation. So as we saw last week, Timothy is described as a man who has slaved with Paul in the gospel. He has ministered with Paul effectively in the gospel and is therefore controlled by the gospel. And because of that, is controlled by Christ, not like most other people who are controlled by their, their self, their self-agendas. He's controlled by the gospel, is therefore controlled by Christ, and therefore Paul knows that when he arrives in Philippi, what they're going to see is somebody who is concerned about their interests. Uh, a model is going to arrive who is gospel-centered, Christ-centered, and therefore then will be other-centered, just like he's been telling them they are to be. They're going to see it in the flesh, modeled. It's Timothy who's coming. But before he arrives, there's this man named Epaphroditus who will come, well-known to the church, he's actually one of them. He is a Philippian. He's from the church. And Paul's sending this letter back with him, and how he describes this man in the letter that he's carrying in his own hands highlights some things for us, another model, slightly different, but similar. Taken as a hold on this paragraph, here, here's the main point I'm working towards this morning. This paragraph is going to encourage us, urge us to think about this point, the God of mercy can and should be trusted as Lord over our lives. The God of mercy can and should be trusted as the Lord over our lives. We should, we should and can entrust our lives to him and say, you reign, you be in charge, you have me. You have control. You, you God of mercy, you. That's where I'm going this morning. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 25. Let me read from verse 25 through the end of the chapter. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Philippians 2. I'm going to make three observations from the passage. Here's the first one. Our God is a God of powerful, kind, wise mercy. This is who he is. A God, our God, is a God of powerful, kind, wise mercy. We see this in how God dealt with Epaphroditus and thereby dealt with Paul and with the whole Philippian congregation. Verse 25 begins with Paul explaining how it is that he thought it necessary to send back Epaphroditus. 
And evidently he tells them of his, of his plan, of his, of his thinking process here on down through verse 28, because originally the plan evidently had been for Epaphroditus to stay with Paul for perhaps the whole length of his imprisonment. He was bringing money, but he was evidently their minister, as it says, sent to serve Paul's needs. He was probably going to stay there the whole time, however long he was in prison. But Paul decides it is necessary to send him back because of verse 26. Epaphroditus, he says, has been longing for and distressed over the Philippians because he knows that they know he was very sick. Extremely sick. But they don't know if he lived or died. And he can just imagine, I mean, we all can imagine, you can imagine, how that's left them in great distress. If, if you have heard, for instance, in a modern context, if you've heard that somebody that you dearly love has been in a, a terrible car accident, and that's all you know, and there aren't any cell phones, and there isn't any postal service, and you're just left with that only, somebody that you dearly love was in a terrible car accident, what happened? I mean, some of us have been in the situation, you can feel the, the agony in that, but it's often relieved by, in some way relieved, by bad news or good news, but no news whatsoever is very difficult. And Epaphroditus knows that's the situation the Philippians are left in. Paul knows that they know that there's a great tension here, and Paul realizes, I can relieve that tension, I'm going to send him back. And he was indeed near death. Verse 30 will add that he nearly died risking his life. And, and here, we, here we come to the point. He didn't just get better or pull out of it, mend. We talk about it like that as if things just happen. Paul's clear he didn't just get better. Middle verse 27, he was near to death, but God had mercy on him. God acted. God did it. A simple little sentence that we have to stop on and look at. This is God at work, which could have been a miraculous healing, and I think that's how we're supposed to understand it, because of, of how heavily he emphasizes near death, risked his life, almost died. I think what Paul means us to hear in that is he was beyond hope. So I think he means for us to hear miraculous healing, but he doesn't specifically say that, so it could have been providential healing. Providential healing, God using normal, ordinary means to bring about his ends, like rest and immune systems and maybe medicine. But either way, Paul does not let us get away from it. If it was miraculous, if it was providential, it was God doing it. God had mercy on him and healed him, spared his life. And that's not mercy. That's not mercy in a sin and punishment context. We often, we, particularly in, in the church, we often think of mercy in, and it's appropriate, in a sin and punishment context. We even sometimes will define mercy. Have you heard this definition? Sometimes we'll define mercy in a, in a quick, shorthand sort of way, not getting what you deserve. And sometimes grace is defined as getting what you don't deserve. And that's, those are appropriate. Those are, those are reasonable, quick, shorthand definitions. But that assumes a particular context, a sin and punishment context. Not getting what you deserve, mercy in that context, but that's not what Paul's getting at here. That's not the context. He's not in any way trying to connect Epaphroditus' sickness to his sin. He's not connecting the two. He's acknowledging he was deathly sick and God had mercy on him. That is, in this way, this other context, he had compassionate pity on and care for someone who was in need. Mercy in that sense. 
Like we, we will talk about a mercy ministry maybe, and what we mean is something that's not missions work, it's not church planting, but it's a mercy mission. It's about meeting a need of someone who, who has a physical, tangible problem. That's what we're seeing about God here. He looked at Epaphroditus and in kind compassion pitied him and powerfully intervened to act and spare his life. God is a God of powerful, kind mercy. Now, I, I completely understand that I have not told you anything you didn't know yet. But stop and think. We very often, we, we fix on certain aspects, often very, very, very true aspects of God. But we fix on them for one reason or another, and we, we grab them, and maybe they captivate our imagination, or maybe they, they connect with some particular bent in our personality, and that's how we begin to think about God. And the problem arises not that we think about that, but that we stop thinking about that. God is, is often larger than we imagine. So perhaps what I'm doing is I'm inviting you to, to kind of include our God, no, I mean really, is a God of mercy. That is, of compassion and kindness and care and action to alleviate pain, suffering, hardship. He does that. He did it right here for Epaphroditus. He had mercy on this sick man, and not only in him, but also on Paul. Still in verse 27, he says, and not just him, but also me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, which does not mean just lest I be really, really sad. What he means is, I have sorrow. And God intervened to keep there from being sorrow layered on top of the sorrow that I have. That there not be sorrow on top of sorrow, God intervened and was merciful, kind and compassionate, powerfully acting to spare me. He saw his life of trial, saw that Paul's life, as we saw already, is like a life poured out as a drink offering and spared him from the additional pain on top of that of having a loved one die. Mercy. God is mercifully, kindly preventing more trouble, and that tells us something about God. We see something about God in his nature here. We should think about. It is in his nature to be kind and merciful and compassionate to his children. It's a bit of his calling card, in fact. He wants himself known as the kind and compassionate one who has mercy on people, who is full of steadfast love and mercy. He is the compassionate one. He uses labels like this all the time to describe himself. He deals with his beloved ones in kindness constantly. There's an additional little twist here that, I'm, that I want to pull out of this passage. Our God is a God of powerful, kind, wise mercy. That is, his mercy is thoughtful and purposeful, intentional. He didn't spare Paul from sorrow but he did spare him from sorrow on top of sorrow. He didn't spare Epaphroditus from illness and suffering and fear and probably being in his own mind convinced, I'm going to die. Didn't spare him from that. But he did spare him from actually dying. And he didn't spare the Philippians from the agonizing worry of their loved one that they've heard has been... What happened? We're just left hanging here? Yes, and I'm not going to spare you from that. But in time, I will spare you from the news actually being what you fear it is, that he's dead. He's not dead. But you don't know that. 
You see, God in mercy acts, and then right in the same passage we see that he also didn't act. He does this and not that. He is indeed a God of mercy, that is, kind, compassion, power, sparing one's life. He will not die because I decided he won't die. But it's wise that it's purposeful, intentional. He's up to something. This is our God also who knows what he's doing, knows how far he intends to stretch his people and why. It's not all spelled out here, but we find significant help, I think, if you were to, to layer alongside of this 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul there describes, about halfway through the chapter, Paul's talking about his own afflictions and his own troubles and says that he was in this place that Epaphroditus is in, where I despaired of life. I was sure I was going to die. So he's telling us there that he was in a similar situation to this one and then tells us a little more there. Why? God did that. We know it was God who did it because he says this was to purpose. There is a reason. This was to, this despairing of life, this tearing of us down and leaving us right hanging on the end was to teach us to trust not in ourselves, says Paul, but in the God who raises the dead. 2 Corinthians 1. God ordained life coming right up to the end to teach you, Paul, my apostle, to teach you, Epaphroditus, to teach us to trust not in yourselves, but in I, the one, but in me, the one who raises the dead. I take you up just that far and stop. Because I've decided that I don't want to cross that line. I know where the line is. I command the line and I command the destiny that leads up to the line and I command it to stop. There's a wise God, a powerful God. And to teach that lesson to his people is a good God, a kind God. This is the mercy of God in wisdom, working to shape his people, to do good to them. Even if it doesn't look like it at the moment. When you're in the midst of the sorrow, when you're at death's door, when you're, you're left hanging about the news that you don't know, what, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, what's going to happen, I don't know tomorrow. When you're left hanging there, it's very easy in our eyes for it to not look like a good God is in charge of it all. But this is who our God is, a God who is a God of mercy and compassion and of great power and is wisely saying, I know where the line is this far, no further. And if this far includes death, because sometimes it does, doesn't it? Sometimes the Epaphroditus die. If that far includes death, then the same God still reigns, the God who is a God of compassion and mercy, wisely determining there's where the line is. I will never let my people go be taken beyond what they can endure, beyond what they can endure with me. I will indeed take them beyond what they can endure by themselves. That's the whole point, to teach them to trust not in themselves, but in me, the one who raises the dead. He knows where the line is between the two. He knows where it is to be cast down but not destroyed. And wisely, in mercy, he takes us up to the line. That's who God is. Over all of our, over all, all of your trials and illnesses and sufferings and hardships and sorrows and fears and uncertainties stands a God of strong, kind, wise mercy 
who is full of compassion and love for you. And part of His compassion and merciful, kind love for you is to teach you to trust not in yourselves, but in Him. To turn your heart towards Him. To find life in Him. And if He accomplishes that mission, praise the Lord, He has done you good. He will take you beyond yourself to make you a truster of Him in new and in profound and in glorious ways that will change your heart and cause you then to be one who shines like a light in the darkness. The whole world is living, trusting in themselves. And if you were to be changed to be one who trusts in Him amidst all of your hardships, rejoicing while even sorrowing, how much of a bright light in darkness is that? How much glory does it draw to God? How much, how clearly, how profoundly does that point people to where life is? God will do that in His people for your good and for His glory. Mercifully, wisely working in us. That's who He is. And that fact should give us great confidence to consider the second point. Here's the second observation from the passage. We are to honor and emulate the risk of self for the sake of Christ. We are to honor and emulate the risk of self for the sake of Christ. Paul is sending Epaphroditus home and he encourages the church in verse 29 to receive him in the Lord with all joy, which isn't there because there's any chance that they wouldn't be happy when they saw him. Everybody would be. He knows that. He's encouraging them to be more than just generically delighted, generically joyful, but to be Godward in their joy. He's reminding them, receive him in the Lord. God has done this. This is existing in the Lord. But Paul's emphasis falls on the second phrase, and honor such men. Don't just be happy that he's back alive, but take care to honor him and everyone else like him, such ones, such people as he is. This that he's gone through, that he's done, is worthy of being honored, verse 34, because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. They were very intent on serving Paul. They saw it as we saw earlier in chapter 1, their partnership with him in the gospel. They knew very much that joining with Paul, that helping Paul was the work of the Lord. They just weren't physically unable to do it all themselves personally. So they sent him as their messenger, him as their servant to go do this, Epaphroditus. And he nearly died while doing it. He nearly died for the sake of Christ. And to take it one step further, that didn't just happen either. He didn't just stumble into danger. The language that Paul uses here is very deliberate and very active. Literally, he says of Epaphroditus, through the work of Christ, unto death he approached, risking his life in order to complete that work. That's Epaphroditus, very active. Through the work of Christ, unto death he approached. This is him taking action to approach up to death, taking risk which echoes the wording used up in verse 8 in the same chapter when he's talking about Jesus, obedient unto death, even death on the cross. He uses some similar phrasing there. He's lining the two up. Christ had a job to do, and he obeyed unto death as he approached the cross to get the work done. Epaphroditus had a job to do, and he unto death obeyed to get the job done putting the two of them side by side, pointing out Epaphroditus voluntarily, putting himself in a place where it seems like I'm taking a, a, a conscious decision to risk. I very well may be at death's door here. This may take me out. And I will do it anyway. He risked himself. 
put himself in harm's way to complete the work of Christ. And as it is, he was brought back from the dead. But like his Lord, he laid down his life to finish the work. Honor such ones. That's what Paul says. Ones who are so like Christ. That's what we're all supposed to be. He, he said earlier, in, at the end of chapter 1, it has been granted to you, church, not just to believe, but also to suffer for his sake, to suffer for the sake of Christ, like Epaphroditus is doing. So he's pointing out, look, Epaphroditus, honor him, and in the same breath what he's really saying is emulate him. He's like Christ. He's what we're supposed to be like. Taking risk to lay down our lives to finish the work of Christ. That's his call on us too. It's his call on all of his people. Of course, not in the same way, not with all the same details. But all of us, we are all called to the risk of self for the sake of Christ, for Christ's name, for his cause, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done in earth as it is in heaven. That is his mission first, and that's the mission that he calls all of us into, all of us who are his servants, his slaves, as the New Testament calls us. That's what he calls us to. To take our lives in our hands and say, here, for your sake. I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I should look this up. I wasn't intending to say it, but I think it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer that said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What he's saying there is that Christ's call on all of us is take your life and surrender it. My life, yours, for your sake. All laid out there. Everything I have laid out there at risk, on the table for you. Don't lose this. Don't lose this point the importance of it, by thinking that it's only a, about like really big stuff. Like preaching before Caesar. Or like missionary work, going to, to plant a church in Iran. It is about big stuff, and it's also about being sure that food and clothing gets to a prisoner. That's what Epaphroditus was doing. The work of Christ that Epaphroditus was doing was to take money and go and make sure that Paul had food to eat and clothes to wear. That's the work of Christ. And preaching to Caesar and planting a church in Iran. Yes. All of it. So don't, don't, lose, don't lose this point and, say, and think either that I'm saying that what he means for you to do is go plant a church in Iran or that what he means for you to do is if that opportunity ever were to arise, which it won't, so I'm safe, but if it ever were to arise, then you'd have to give up your life. But it's not going to, thank goodness, so I'm safe. No, all, here's my life. And so when I'm at the dinner table with my whining children, Mom, when I'm at the dinner table with my whining children, and what I want to do is either slap them, snap at them, or ignore them, what I actually do is I say, oh, Lord, what's infinitely harder, here's my life, what's infinitely harder is to figure out what to do right now to control the discipline problem and shape their hearts so that they are changed, so be, that they are not just conformed by force. I can beat them into obedience right now. When they're 18, I'll have difficulty. 
How, oh God, how do I change their hearts with the gospel right now? What do I do? I got to control the throwing of the food. I got to control that. But I I have to get their hearts. This is infinitely more complicated. What I'd rather do is spank them and yell at them. It's going to take me an hour. Here's my life for the whole hour. For your sake, with these kids that nobody's ever going to see. That is hard. That's really hard. That's infinitely more common than church planting in Iran. And that's where life is lived. That's where most of Christ's servants live out the cause of Christ. Most of us are never going to plant a church in Iran. If that's all this is about, it doesn't apply. But it's about far more than that. I I think also another way it's, it's applicable to many of us is a very difficult to define how do I go to the ninth and ninth street fair for the sake of Christ I went to that yesterday and I went and walked around a little bit I don't know if anybody else went there parts of it are clear overt celebrations of wrong of sin most of it isn't. Most of it's just fine and, and okay and enjoyable. But all of it, except for the university booth where they were handing out bottles of water with Jesus talking about drinking the water of life, except for that booth, the rest of it was 110% secular. Or, or non-Christian, I should say. There were other religious things there. But it was all secular. And it is very easy to just walk that path. I'm a secular person now because this environment, and I'm not even thinking about Jesus. I'm not thinking about, here's my life, Lord, for your cause. Now, that's a, a little carnival or fair, whatever you call it. It's, it's just for a moment, just in one place. But, but take that as the window into your life, which is probably largely secular. You probably spend a ton of time around people and in environments that are, that are on the front end not very religious. How do you, and the point of the difficulty is, this is the first question, how do I? How do I live for the sake of Christ in this I mean, I know how to function, I know how to get my job done, I know how to mow the lawn, I know how to talk to the neighbor, but for the sake of Christ, what, what is that? To think that through is, is itself burdensome, and it's easier just to chuck it. But to think it through is important and hard. Part of the answer is that just doing your job well itself honors Christ. I was talking with a man this week about business, Business done well, that provides jobs, that provides product that is helpful for the world, that done well itself is honoring to Christ. Just, just That's part of the answer. Another piece of the answer about how you do it, ethically, morally, that's, that's a part of the answer. But th- that can be done by non-Christians. So there's got to be a little more. What is the little more? to in some way reflect that when God in wise mercy takes me to the end of myself, that I as a light in darkness find somewhere to stand that's different than the other person does. That's got to be another piece of the answer. Another piece of the answer, how you deal with enemies, what you say in the lunchroom when when opportunity comes. Where'd you go on Sunday? Mm, After I got up, a little bit later I went hiking. as if nothing happened in the morning. Those are pieces of the answer. I don't know how to, how to answer the whole thing. But thinking about it itself is hard, and committing yourself to think about my life for Christ in this environment is hard. But that's where you live. And when Christ calls you and bids you come and die, what he's saying is, come give your life to me, at the 9th and 9th Street Fair, in your office, over the fence with your neighbor, 
in far more than just in those few moments that you're proclaiming the four spiritual laws, the, the simple boiled-down gospel. Then, of course, but all of this time too. That's complicated. That's really complicated. And that's what he calls us to. I don't have all the answers to that. I think that's part of the purpose of the body, to teach us, to, to refine us, to help us find our way, learning from others who are modeling how to do it. Don't lose the importance of this point that he calls us to emulate, to not just honor, but also to emulate the risk of self, the laying down of my whole life though it may cost me to lay my life down for the sake of Christ. A sacrifice for him. As we talked about a few weeks back using that language. A life poured out as a drink offering. If your work is Christ-serving and kingdom-oriented on behalf of building his church in humble dependence on him with joy, Christ-serving, kingdom-oriented on behalf of building his church in humble dependence on him with joy. Big mouthful. That's what life is about for us, and we are to give ourselves away to it. Not just in the flashy, but in the ho-hum. So God is a God of strong and kind and wise mercy. And we are called to give away our lives for his sake. To risk. And the third point ties the two together. And if you were here last week, connects a little bit back to what we were talking about last week. So here's the third point, which I'll be quick with. We grow in emulating this risk of self. We grow in and risking our lives and giving our lives away in submission and sacrifice, we grow in that as we grow to believe that it is no real risk. Obviously, I'm playing this little semantic game there, but let me say it again. We grow in emulating this risk of self as we grow to believe that it is no real risk after all. Paul says it's risk. So, of course, in one sense, we have to honor that. Epaphroditus knew he was taking a chance of dying. We don't want to deny that. And in fact, God is honored by that. When we lay our lives out there, it's a statement that has some teeth in it where I know and people can look at me and realize, I know this may cost me relationally, financially, health-wise, even life. It may cost me, but I value this other thing so much that I will step out there and perhaps even die for it. That's a, that's a statement. Risk is, is real. Risk honors Christ. We don't want to diminish the risk. And on the other hand, the other side of my semantic tension here, point I'm making is that we will grow in taking that sort of risk as we grow in realizing that it isn't really a risk. A speculator who sells everything he has to scrape together just enough money to buy and lay claim to a piece of land where he hopes to strike gold or oil or diamonds, that's a risk. But if that man already knew somehow that there were diamonds in that piece of land, that a great treasure was indeed hidden just below the weeds and the rocks, if he knew that, then selling everything he had to get enough money to buy that field is no risk at all. It is wisdom. The real risk lies in not doing it and hoping to keep everything I have in my hands and profit some other way. You see, that's the risk. There's a field full of diamonds. I think I'll try something else. Maybe that'll work, but I have no way of knowing. That will certainly 
There's no risk in giving everything I have to get that. Like Paul, this Epaphroditus, this brother, as he's describing verse 25, this fellow worker, an even more intimate term, this fellow soldier, a yet even more intimate term, he's making very clear, Epaphroditus and me, same wavelength. How I think, he thinks. How I'm living, he's living. This Epaphroditus is thoroughly convinced that to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's thinking through this whole thing. If I live, here I am on this work of prayer. If I live in this, in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, completing the work of Christ, storing up treasure in heaven, advancing my own joy and fellowship now with Jesus who has linked arms with me in the battle. And if I die and I go to be with the Lord, that is far better. I live in a perpetual win-win situation. You've got to see that. To live is Christ, to die is gain, is perpetual win-win. There's no risk at all. The only risk he or we can face is the risk of trying to hold on to our lives in unbelief. And you realize that's where we're stuck so often. Not believing what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. That's here's my life. And follow me. For whoever would save his life, whoever would try to hold on to it, will lose it, promises the Lord. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, promises the Lord. Come and die. Lay down your life to find it. And I warn you, though, if you try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. That's the big risk. And in unbelief, oh, tragically, in unbelief, we're toying with it every day. There's no risk in the kingdom. It's an investment with a certain massive return this is the basic problem of the human heart. If you're not a Christian, this is your problem. If you're not a Christian, understand where you sit. You sit with an offer right in front of you. Jesus died on the cross so that your sin may be taken off of you. The wrath of God for your sin taken off of you and you instead in its place be given, receive as a gift, life now and forever. And your problem is that you hear the English words and you get the English words and your heart says, I don't believe that. I think I can find my own life and secure my own eternity apart from him. And it's not true. May God open your eyes to believe and be saved, to flee from the wrath to come and run to life that is found only in trusting the crucified Christ. And ironically, Christian, we're not that far from them. Ironically, tragically, Christian, we're not that far from the non-Christian person. We still struggle to believe the wonder of the promise because as I look at death in front of me and step towards it, very often God has hidden on the other side of that his mercy, not on the side, on the side my eyes can see. I can't see it. Believe and pray for God to give you help with your unbelief. May God free you from blindness and coldness of an unbelieving heart to see Him as precious, to believe that life is Christ, not health or possessions or physical pleasure. Life is Christ, period. To live is Christ. 
and to lose everything for the sake of Christ is wonderful blessing in the end. A loss of all that the world can offer, but the gaining of deeper intimacy with Christ. The, we, the, the, the weaning away from depending on self and a deeper dependence on Him. Finding an intimacy with Him that is real and alive and marvelous is wonderful and awesome and good. And that will cost you everything. And you will grow in the ability to give up everything the more you believe Here's where your life is found. May God open your eyes to believe it. With joy, may he free you to believe that treasure of untold glory lies buried in the frightening field of surrender and sacrifice and humble faith. In joy, sell your life to find it. And don't risk so much by refusing to surrender to Him. Let me pray. Oh God, we are at the end of our abilities. The human words have been spoken, written, read. The Spirit of God, would you press truth into the hearts of the people who sit here and have spoken and have heard these things and open the eyes of our hearts that we may see the glory of the hope to which you have called us, the great value you have on us and your power that is at work in us. Give us eyes to see. Work in your church. Build your believers. Call people to faith. Please, Lord, move. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.